So I heard that the Seattle Design Festival was coming up. And when I first heard that there was a Seattle Design Festival, I pictured a bunch of super designy architects with crazy haircuts and trendy shirts all sitting in a circle and saying super complicated, meaningless design words. And then like saying OM for 30 minutes. And like <laughs> My first impulse was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be just like school. This is all what I wanted to avoid. But then I looked into it a little more and learning about it, it's so much more inclusive and there's none of that crazy double speak it's just really accessible we like when we started this podcast one of the biggest hurdles we had was people don't generally sit around and talk about design who aren't already designers <laughs> it just seems like nobody does they just they're either intimidated by it or what is out there is written by designers for designers and when i first heard about the festival i just thought it was really cool that at least for a week or two it's open to everyone and it's very inclusive you don't have to wear all black and wear architect glasses. No, you do not. You do not. Uh, maybe you'll get like a special pass. <laughs> That's like the fast pass. It's like if you wear all black and you put on like four glasses, they're like, oh, sir, over here in the TSA pre-check line for, for Seattle Design Festival. And say things like meta-exogenic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something that's very cool about the, the way that the Seattle Design Festival is. It's really, really inclusive. And no translation. Really appreciate that. Yes. The ninth annual Seattle Design Festival, featuring over 100 events and installations, will be held August 16th through 25th. Some of this year's featured events include a technology design discussion with Microsoft that will explore living in harmony with the things we create. That'll be on August 19th. Also, our thriving cities discussion with Gensler will explore how to eliminate imbalance and inequality in Seattle on August 23rd. Also new this year are Neighborhood Crawls, a concentrated series of events and open studios in Capitol Hill on August 17th and in Georgetown on August 22nd. Full schedule can be found at designinpublic.org. Yeah, I have a pair of pants. I def- it feels like a hula skirt when it's on. Even though they fit fine, they don't feel that. About that. Like all, pants I, all that I feel like a hula skirt. All I feel <laughs> is the waistband. Oh, I was like, all you feel is like grass. <laughs> the Hawaiian breeze <laughs> coming up my up my pants. No. Um, I don't know why my brain went right to Like pool. dried grass along your legs. <laughs> I have pants that feel like that too. <laughs> well, I think it was more of a known for style choice. <laughs> I don't think I've worn pleated pants since uh, a year with the age. I've definitely not. I don't have any pleated like, khakis. The name okay. of this episode should just be Let's Talk About Pants. Let's Talk pants. About Pants. Yeah. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. One of the best parts of living in a city is having access to an endless array of bars and restaurants, and the food and drinks are just the beginning of what draws us out. Aesthetics play a huge role in the experience we have when we eat out, and design can make or break a successful bar, lounge, or restaurant. There are spaces that might be spare and honest, or opulent and elegant. They might teach us about where we are or take us far away. And on top of all that, there's Swiss Army watches of functionality and beauty. Creating a space that's affordable on day one, but built to last, is hard enough. But what about designing a space that feels authentic instead of cliche? Or a space that can entice social media buzz or navigate the fickle world of design trends? Hospitality is one of the most exciting design challenges there is, but it is not for the faint of heart. 
To chat with us about some of those challenges, we are joined by Linda Dershang, owner of the Dershang Group, a mix of restaurants, cafes, and bars such as Oddfellows, King's Hardware, Queen City, and many more. Linda, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us again. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we recorded a show previously, and then I pressed stop on said recording, and then the recording disappeared. So we're going to try this again. So if you hear us referring to last show, do not search for a last show. You won't find one. That's why we might mention one. Thank you for coming back. Absolutely. Looking forward to round two. <laughs> <laughs> so something we talk about a lot when we talk about hospitality design is actually how some restaurateurs have like a design section of their company now where they hired up designers and they're designing and building out their own spaces. You, when you started out, were already doing that yourself without needing to modify the way you went about opening your spaces, which I think is really unique. But it sounds like from our chats earlier that most people kind of assumed you were just hiring all that work out. You were having consultants come in and do it for you. How did you discover that people made that assumption? People asked me over and over who my contractor was, and I thought they needed a contractor. <laughs> but then I realized they were actually looking for a designer, not a contractor. Right. Sometimes they asked me for my architect, and I did work with architects, but that was mainly to push plans through to the city. And again, they assumed that there was an architect designing the businesses as well. And maybe that I was just finding the paintings for the wall or picking out chairs, but that was about it. Right. Does that still follow you around? Not as much anymore. Really in the last five years, I think many people have realized that I do design the businesses, but also I'm not a chef and I don't know how to bartend. <laughs> so I really started by opening businesses that I wanted to go to and I knew what I wanted them to look like. Right. And I wouldn't have even begun to know who to hire to do it. It honestly just made sense to start creating them myself. And even starting with Linda's Tavern in 1994, we were using salvaged wood and logs and old cabinetry that we found from the salvage stores. There was a store called Ruby Montana's Pinto Pony, and she had some really cool old wagon wheel light fixtures and paintings and I'm trying to think what else Where we was that? from her. It was in Pioneer Square. Oh, okay. Ruby's still a buddy of mine. She moved to Palm Springs about 20 years ago, and she has a motel there called the Coral Sands Inn, and it's fantastic. <laughs> what else did we find? I know, the jukebox. It was from the place down on First Avenue South called Jukebox City. And when we first opened, we had an old jukebox that actually played 45s. And the buffalo that hangs behind the bar at Linda's Tavern was from Jukebox City. That's cool. It was so fun trying to find all these different things to put Linda's together, to make it feel like it had been around for a while. But it was also, in a sense, collecting things that I really loved and putting them together in the space. I think that's where the designing began. And with Linda's, we were working with an architect, but he'd been doing really modern design. We just happened to know him. So mm -hmm. he had designed the Gravity Bar on Broadway for anyone who's been around Seattle for a really long time. <laughs> they might remember that, but it had this really like modern, cool look. And it was a juice bar and kind of a healthy restaurant in a sense, like juice box today right, on right. 12th. But it was in the <laughs> late 80s and early 90s in Seattle. 
And we happened to know the architect and said, will you help us with this? But really the help wasn't design. It was like laying out the bar and telling us where the electrical would go and the plumbing. And I think I thought that architects just built buildings right. and they did the practical things <laughs> in the interiors so that a business would function. I didn't really think of them as designers. Well, that's okay. <laughs> and I didn't know that much. I mean, I guess I just thought that they did more of the whole building and that they wouldn't pick out the light fixtures and the furniture. And once upon a time, that was pretty true. We were just doing an interview a couple of weeks ago about how the boundaries have blurred now more than ever as to like what a designer does. And it can be graphic design. It can be interior design. It could be even tech UX design. Like there are no more real boundaries anymore. And I would say what you do overlaps a ton with what an architect does. There's no real difference anymore, which is a good thing. I'm so curious as to how your spaces, because they are all unique and they all have their own story, but at the same time, they have a feel that is similar. They all feel like a family of spaces. And when I first moved here, I know I mentioned this last time, a couple of your bars, Smith and Oddfellows, were a couple of the first places I really gravitated towards and connected to. And I didn't know they were owned or designed by the same person, yet they had a feeling that both connected with me. And then when I discovered who you were, it made perfect sense. Yet there's other restaurateurs out there that design their places to have a similar look and that you can see that they're all a family also, but it's just kind of like the same colors, the same finishes, which is different than what you do. All of your places have different finishes and different palettes, but a similar sort of feel. Does that have to do with the type of stories you're telling? Are they all places you want to feel vintagey, like they've been around for a while? What is it, do you think, that makes them all feel connected? Probably using salvaged or old materials to give the places a patina or a look from another time. But I definitely am drawn to, obviously, taxidermy for anyone who knows my business. <laughs> and I've got some in my house and always have, you know, and old paintings and books. I've used books in some of the designs and I am trying to always create different looks, but not really completely different. How would I describe it? I guess probably the most different one would have been Tallulah's mm -hmm. because it was opened in a new construction building and I had never worked in new construction before. And boy, that was really a challenge. <laughs> I mean, when there's a parking garage below your floor, you have to be really careful where you drill into the floor mm -hmm. for plumbing and electrical or horrible <laughs> things can happen. Yes, yes, very bad things. <laughs> so there were so many details around that design that I found really challenging. I knew that we couldn't make, let's say, a new building look really old, and it just would have felt fake somehow. So I tried to think about going from maybe the 1950s through the 1980s with Tallulah's. Mm. And it was sort of Big Sur in the 70s by way of Morocco, with a, a bit of the inspiration. <laughs> and there's always a little bit of a story like that, too, uh -huh. sometimes a real actual story about a person who opened the business which I used with the Rob Roy down in Belltown when I did that in 2002. There was an actual person and we mm. were modeling it on this fellow's basement bar. And the same with the bait shop. There was an actual person supposedly that owned it. Yeah, so, I want to get back to that yeah. <laughs> bait shop in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of hemmed myself in by saying about 1950 to 1980 with Tallulah's to kind of keep it a little mid-century, a little bit 70s, a little 80s thrown in there. But I think that that helped me from sort of being all over the place. Yet, you know, it's still, it has a kind of an eclectic feeling, but I felt that staying in the range of those decades 
would work better with new construction. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Where, you know, Odd Fellows, I was thinking sort of turn of the century, not the last century, but the century before, uh, (laughs) (laughs) mercantile. But that made sense because the building was built in, I think, 1910. Which one of your spaces do you feel the most emotionally connected to? If any, I'm not Mm going to force you to feel emotionally connected. Well, I, I do to all of them. And to ones that I've sold, there was an emotional connection. At times, though, I think of it sort of like a relationship. Sometimes the relationship is over. Sometimes it's time to sell a business. (laughs) That's funny. And I'm not terribly nostalgic about the ones that I've sold. Not a super nostalgic person. I tend to be present and a little bit in the future. But there's That's kind of ironic considering how rooted in nostalgia your design sense is. Isn't that funny? It is. Yeah. Definitely Linda's. I mean, of course, Mm -hmm. it's my baby. I can't ever imagine selling it. And there's just something that happens when I walk into Linda's, just this feeling of like, oh, yes, Linda's. And I have that with Oddfellows, for sure. There's Mm -hmm. something about Oddfellows. And there were a lot of challenges in the first year of Oddfellows. And so somehow making it through all of those challenges and getting to almost 11 years of being open feels really good. In Queen City now, I have this feeling about because, you know, it's such a Seattle classic. And it was a new experience to take over an old Seattle business and recreate it, but not do too much to it. Mm -hmm. And we're not even a year old. So I still feel really like, yeah, Queen City, love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see over time how you feel about Queen City, if you feel more connected to it or less. I know. I know. That's more complicated to have something that had a soul that you have to either what wipe away or pay a ton of respect to. And that had to be more challenging. Well, you know, when I was designing it, I was not thinking about the Queen City grill of the 1987 to recent. I had been in there a number of times, but it was never my hangout at the time that it was like really popular and booming. I was up on Capitol Hill with all of my businesses, so I just didn't even have time to hang out. I mean, I think it was booming in the mid, late 90s, especially. Mm. And I had Linda's Tavern, Capitol Club, and the Baltic Room by 1997. So I wasn't spending that many evenings in other people's businesses. (laughs) (laughs) I was working. So when we took it over, I decided to refer back to this other sort of romantic time in Seattle. And I went for like 1910 when the building was built to 1930s, 40s and envisioning what it could have been like. I don't know what it looked like, Mm -hmm. but I was thinking about, you know, the sailors that might have been docking on a boat around there. You know, and there's this like blue collar background of Mm -hmm. Seattle and seafaring background. And and I was thinking about the people that might have hung out there then. And so there's a few references to, I mean, there's a sailor painting on one of the walls. But I was thinking of the romance of the 1920s and 30s a little bit when we redid it. We don't know what the history was, but if it has been open from 1910 as a bar and restaurant Mm -hmm. till now, you know, I was sort of, I guess, making it up in my head and imagining a a little bit of a romantic past there. That's the perfect segue to Mm -hmm. Bait Shop. Uh (laughs) I was mentioning last time the thing that, and I actually, Bait Shop might have been the bar that put it all together for me. I went to Bait Shop with friends and they were like, oh, this is a Linda Dershang place. And I was like, it all made sense. I was like, oh yes, Oddfellows, Linda's. But the, is it the Camaro hood that's in- Firebird. The Firebird, thank you. Yeah, that I was just like obsessed with. And every time I just stare at it, every time I'm there and it feels different and it felt like there was a story. Mm -hmm. And I was curious to hear Bait Shop specifically how you approach putting that space together. Sometimes I have to come up with a story to explain to the contractor and to all the subs and even to the employees or to the team that I'm working with 
why we're going to do the things that we're going to do. (laughs) (laughs) And the story helps people understand. And I certainly, you know, put together collages. I don't use Pinterest, but I actually use Microsoft Word and drop photographs into (laughs) Microsoft (laughs) Word and make these funny collages that will give you the idea of what it's going to look like. And I do sketches. But I think telling a story helps people really understand it. So the story of Bait Shop was that there was a fellow that had been a fisherman in Alaska. This is around 1950. And he was probably in his 40s. And he was just done. You know, it's a rough job on your body. And he was exhausted and knew he'd always wanted to own a bar. But he didn't have a ton of money saved. He had some. So he had some of his buddies help him. And he found this spot on Broadway. And he started building, you know, his dream bar. His buddies helped. So things were kind of funky because it wasn't, which made it great because they weren't really carpenters and they all had fun (laughs) building it together. And anyway, it was around for quite a few years, (laughs) but by the 1970s, he was ready to retire. And he had a son that was in his later twenties, early thirties. And his son really wanted to take over the bar, but the son was just, he was a screw up. He just (laughs) was a screw up. And so he started off by modernizing it. So he put in some kind of 70s light fixtures and, you know, a few things on the wall that were kind of 70s to make (laughs) his dad's old dive bar kind of hip. And then one night he went out and he had this firebird and he got in an accident. He totaled the car and all that was left was the hood. (laughs) So he took the hood of his car, of his firebird that he loved, and he hung it on the wall of the bar. That's the story of the bait shop. Wild. So I ended up with it. (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a Saturday afternoon that these guys were coming in to put down the linoleum tile that's there. And it had been kind of a modern Chinese restaurant in its last incarnation. But before that, it had been for years a dive called the Jade Pagoda. And the Chinese restaurant only lasted about a year. It was a bit of a sad story. So these guys came in with the linoleum and said, wait, why are we putting linoleum (laughs) tiles on this really nice polished cement floor? And he said, well, let me tell you the story about the bar. Fantastic. when I finished the story, they said, Wow, that is so cool. And they really got into laying the linoleum and they tolerated me moving some of the colors around and changing the pattern. And we just had a really good time doing it. And I I just felt like it just made so much more sense why they were doing it. And I think they felt this sort of pride in putting this together. And that happened over and over again with Bait Shop. It's happened with other projects I've done. When people have this feeling that we're creating something. Yeah, it gives them a sense of ownership. Yes, exactly. If they can be part of the story. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I love working with guys in the trades, you Mm -hmm. know, and occasionally women. There aren't as many, but there's this pride in what they're doing that I found over and over again. Mm -hmm. There was another fellow that paneled the bathrooms and the stuff. It's like the fake wood paneling. I think it's, I can't remember what it was called. Mm -hmm. But when I told the contractor I wanted to use it to panel the bathrooms, he was like, are you kidding? Are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) And I said, I don't know where to find it. And he goes, neither do I. No one uses that. Like that stuff is hideous. And I go, no, it's cool. It's going to be really cool. So he found it. And one of his guys was paneling the bathroom and I walked in and said, hey, what do you think of this? Am I crazy or is it good? And he's like, oh, Linda, (laughs) this is so cool. And I thought, you know, he's my customer. The Mm -hmm. general contractor is not my customer. He's a great guy, (laughs) but he's not going to hang out at the bait shop. But the guy that was doing the wood paneling was way more likely to be the sort of person that was going to come in there. And he thought it was rad. 
Do you find that the stories take on a life of their own? Because now that those guys have that as part of their narrative that they get to share and they pass it on, like, do you ever come across them, like, in the wild, the (laughs) stories? Do they come back around? Every once in a while, somebody tells me that I I heard there's a story about the bait shop, or I heard there was a story about another one of your businesses, but the bait shop one was probably the most elaborate. I don't even know how that happened. I just kind of went with it, and it just sort of grew. I have to tell you, that's one of the hardest things to do in design. To yeah. tell an authentic story and to tell a all good the time. story. And it's just like, oh, yeah. A lot of designers like to think How of themselves as storytellers, but it's not a great story. Just like, oh, yeah. it's an abandoned warehouse and I'm putting a bunch of black steel in here and look right. how industrial and yeah. abandoned my warehouse is. It's not a story. Right. <laughs> it's right. just not. Like who yeah. hangs out there right. and yeah. why do they want to go there and why nope. is it abandoned? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's no story. It's like there. how do you tell a good story? Everybody's yeah. all about telling stories, but how do you tell one that people right. care about hearing? Yeah. And like that's an incredible rare thing. Would you ever consider like just doing that, being a designer slash storyteller and doing other, would you do like someone else's place or would you only do it for your own place? Well, many years ago, people started asking me if I would help them with a project. Mm -hmm. So I tried a few times and I realized they wanted me to help source things and they wanted me to say, oh yeah, that does look good. Mm -hmm. They didn't really want me to design it. to the design world. Yeah. And I also (laughs) realized that it takes someone with a lot of patience to do that. And I am actually lacking in patience. Mm -hmm. So I could never do it. I really don't think that I could. Mm -hmm. If somebody said, you know what, you have the freedom to do whatever you want. And here's X amount of dollars to do it. It doesn't have to be a major amount of money because sometimes Mm -hmm. I think that when you're really trying to design on a budget, it makes you be more clever and creative. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I often, when I'm traveling, I'm looking for places that are more funky and cool and maybe done by young people in an emerging neighborhood because they don't have major budgets. Switching gears. There's several things about Oddfellows that I find fascinating. I've always felt was fascinating about Oddfellows. It was one of the places that I frequented the most when I first moved here because I had lived on the East Coast previously and the outdoor seating felt a little bit like New York where I could do some people watching. But also if I had friends, I could seat four or six people and be really comfortable. And then if I was with a bunch of people, I could feel equally as comfortable. If I wanted to be alone and feel intimate, it was a place I could go. And if I wanted to feel social and meet someone, it was a place I could go, which is rare in and of itself. And then secondly, it was also such a huge space. Whenever we're tackling a large commercial space, the number one most challenging thing is to try to make it feel intimate. The ceiling is so high and you don't want to rely tons on just building a bunch of walls and partitions because that's going to feel horrible. But at the same time, you don't want to feel you're just in this massive open cafeteria either. That's not going to feel special. Somehow all of the seats, no matter where you, I've sat just about everywhere in Oddfellow, somehow not at the bar yet, but I'll get there. (laughs) They all feel special and they all feel intimate regardless of where you are. I always found that fascinating and it's incredible that you were able to meet that challenge. Well, thank you. I think a lot about how a space feels and how people are going to use it. So I'm definitely conscious of what I want it to look like but I think equally about what I want it to feel like. And I also think about how the staff is going to use it because I think of a bar as being, in a sense, like a pair of shoes. So if you make the bar too narrow between the front bar and the back bar, your shoes are too tight. It's Mm -hmm. hard for them to work. But if you make it too wide, they have to take too many steps and reach for things. So you have to make it fit just perfect. 
And the Oddfellows Bar was really challenging because we were going to be open from eight in the morning until some nights midnight serving espresso and then lunch and then cocktails and wine later. So how do you take a fairly small bar and have it function as an espresso bar and a bar that could make cocktails and wine for lunch and then in the evening more of a cocktail bar for the restaurant? That was a design challenge. We made the kitchen way too small. Luckily, we were able to take more space in the basement to have a prep kitchen in the basement and more office space in the basement. But the room itself was tricky. So I decided to put a wait station about two-thirds back in the room. And I thought that, for one, servers tend to hide in wait stations. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. So if the wait station was visible, they can't really hide. And that keeps them active on the floor. But also putting it in the middle made sense to tuck a communal table behind the wait station. So if you had a larger party, they could almost feel like it wasn't a private room by any means, but it had a sense that it could be a little bit private. But if the restaurant wasn't really busy, that back table can function a little bit as an office that people will do side work and some paperwork there. But you wouldn't notice that it wasn't busy because it's divided into two thirds and one third in the back. Also putting banquettes around the room, which are from St. Joe's on Capitol Hill. When they were doing a remodel, I was able to buy a bunch of the church pews. Meant that we could have square tables instead of round that you could push together. So you could have a two-top or a four-top. But also when you have a lot of two-tops and a banquette or bench, people are more comfortable going into a business by themselves. No one wants to sit by yourself in the middle of a room. You just feel it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) But if you've got your back up against something, and so Mm -hmm. the wait station does the same thing. There's a bench there. So if you're sitting at that bench, although you're in the middle of the room, you don't really feel like you're in the middle of the room. Yeah, that's key. But you can sit there and watch. And I also think that people like to people watch. Whether it's the booths at Linda's Tavern are at a little bit below shoulder height and they're a little higher at Smith, the booth height is very intentional because I think people want to feel tucked into a booth. But if they didn't want to people watch, they would stay home. So I want the booths to be low enough that they can see, mm-hmm. people can see other this people. This is key. Rachel yes. and I specifically hide in the back booth at Smith. But, but, we're, but we're not hiding. We're having the best view of the like, That right. booth exactly. is the best booth. <laughs> <laughs> if that booth had more than a shoulder height, if right. it went all the way up, I would sit in the one right on the other side of it. I need to see the room. Yeah, It's funny. It's not to pick on 13 coins because there's a lot of good things going on in 13 coins. But that bothers me mm-hmm. that it blocks all. Have you been to 13? No, years, I haven't been. It bothers me that all of the sight lines are blocked. Even yeah, that in would those make me really uncomfortable. Awesome, they're awesome. Those bar seats are cool. But the experience of being in them, you don't yeah. get any of the benefits of all this amazing design around you. Right. It's all blocked. And I yeah. know other people in town. In fact, Tom Douglas told me once many, many years ago that he likes high booths because then you can't tell how busy a restaurant is. Why don't you want to know how busy a restaurant is? You don't want to f- feel empty, I guess. You don't want to feel oh, like so you're, you're, Oh, yeah. so it's, if it's not busy, you can't tell. You can't oh. tell. So if you're just a busy restaurant, it's yeah. fine, though. I mean, I think he told me that 16 years ago or more, so I don't know if he still believes it. I don't think he's as worried about it now, but... Well, I don't think possible. he had to worry about it then, actually. I, think, I don't know if he's ever had to worry about it. I thought that was really interesting, but I'm definitely an extrovert, and I like to be out and about in the world, and I really like to people watch. So mm-hmm. I just really think that people... If they're out, they are going to want to see other people, but be in that booth so they don't necessarily have to engage as opposed to sitting at a communal table. Unless you're taking up the whole table, then you may have to engage. As an introvert, I feel really uncomfortable almost in maybe some Seattle-ness stuff too. Mm -hmm. Like, am I allowed to be the one person that's going to sit down at this communal table when nobody else is there yet? 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it sounds ridiculous when I say it in words, but it definitely crosses my mind if I go into a, like, can I, all of this, this is all mine, you know? <laughs> well, I think that Seattle <laughs> has a higher uh, ratio of introverts than probably, say, New York City. Uh-huh. Right? I, would, I would say that's a safe assumption. Yes. So I actually started using communal tables when we opened Smith 12 years ago. And it was risky then. There weren't a ton of communal tables around yeah. Seattle. And I don't know how many places had them, but very few, if any. And I know that seems weird because now they're fairly common. Mm-hmm. But I remember asking some friends, if I put communal tables in the middle of Smith, is anyone going to sit there? Are people just going to freak out because Seattleites don't like to talk to strangers? Or would that be awesome? And that would help people meet new people. If it's going to be a neighborhood restaurant, would this be really great? Mm-hmm. I would love it if that shifted. I think one of the introvert fears, too, mm-hmm. is that it's like, is it a rule? Am I going to get in trouble oh, interesting. if I do this, right? So like you said, if I've decided to leave the house, I'm going to go be out and go be around people, then yes, like I've made that step. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to, maybe this is a separate psychological issue. Like I don't want to get in trouble, <laughs> you know, <laughs> socially or something. But it's like, if it's allowed. I feel like we're getting to know the real Yeah, Rachel. we're like, wait, we're having therapy session. <laughs> you know, like, no, like, One communal table and you yeah. just like, we're, we're deep into Rachel's it's, real. It is a Seattle social thing, right? Like, is it okay to talk to somebody that you don't know? No, I think you're a lot of Seattleites right. are like, mm-hmm. no, it's not cool. Not don't to, talk to me. And you're not allowed to you're ask questions. You're not supposed to, you know, and all those things. But if there was like a safe space where you were allowed to, like yeah. you sit at this table, it means, hey, talk to me. Yeah. Actually, I just saw a thing, not to go on a little bit of a tangent, but it's kind of related. I think it might have been somewhere in the UK. I'm not sure. But it was a bench in a park, just like a public bench in a public park that had a sign on it that said something along the lines of, sit in this bench if you're inviting conversation from other oh, people if you want to talk yeah. sit in this bench and like strangers will come too. by and talk yeah. to you yes it's created a space where it's acceptable the, the to acceptable to thing mm-hmm. is that you're going to talk to strangers here mm-hmm. and you put yourself in that spot and then everybody knows like there's a social agreement that this is what happens here mm-hmm. we used to have what smoking and no smoking we'll have talking yeah and no talking, talking and don't talk to me <laughs> these booths are for not talking they are higher than shoulder height I've never had a person in Seattle at a communal table talk to me really ever oh see I have not yet I mean that I didn't come with well no yeah no well, yeah, I have and no, at in first New York, I was like if I wait, said, at a communal table, I would definitely get to know at oh least gosh, the adjacent I've, people. I've sat at tables and ended up sharing dessert with the people yes. that, that you just met. Uh-huh. That we just met that were sitting <laughs> next to us like so many times. Yeah. So many more in times New York. in New York yeah. than ever in Seattle. Oh, in New York. I tell that a lot. When people ask me the biggest difference, I say I can leave my apartment in New York at 930, go out at 10 with no friends and no plan. And by the end of the night, no fault of my own and no effort. I can meet as many people as I feel like. Mm-hmm. You can just sit near a booth and end up in that conversation and know people by the end of the evening. So we just and need to change accident. the culture. I, I, I really think that people are just afraid that other people will get mad. Yes. You just described Seattle in a nutshell. But yeah. But I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to know people. <laughs> like, I want to know things and hang out and have fun. But I'm always like, are they going to get mad at me? <laughs> yeah. Well, even the amount of anxiety I feel when someone just wants to ask what I ordered, which is the basic icebreaker in a oh, like, restaurant. Yeah. yeah, what is that dish that you Yeah, I can you feel the good. fear in their eyes. Like, they desperately want to order that thing. But, oh, my God, the amount of effort it's taking to ask me this question. It's just like, man, <laughs> just get over it. But switching gears, one question I definitely <laughs> question I definitely wanted to ask you last time that I didn't get the chance. 
It's more of a general interesting note that you started your career as a restaurateur, even though you didn't know it, back in the day when you opened Linda's far before social media existed as a thing. Today, obviously, you're thriving not just as a restaurateur, but also as a social media personality slash influencer. <laughs> and I am so curious was this a transition you noticed? Did you have a day where you decided this was going to be a thing you did? Or was it all organic? Do you ever find the tail wagging the dog where you're doing something in life for the reason you want to put it on Instagram? I'm just so curious about how it all takes shape for you. Well, Instagram is an interesting thing because I really do love it. And I had never loved Facebook and still don't. And I'm not on Twitter. And I was in Morocco about four and a half years ago or something. And I was with some friends that worked for magazines and they were all using Instagram and saying, you should be on Instagram. Are your restaurants on Instagram? What are you doing? So I started begrudgingly and I realized within about a year or so how much I liked photography and how much I enjoyed Instagram. It like taps into many things that I like. So connecting. I met numerous people that some of that have become really good friends that I wouldn't have met through a bar restaurant world in Seattle that were artists and photographers, food bloggers, designers, a lot of creative people. They were often going to my restaurants and knew who I was or knew the restaurants, but we didn't know each other and we wouldn't have crossed paths if it hadn't been for Instagram. And so then when I would meet someone sometimes... They would say, yes, we've met. Well, we haven't really met. I follow you on Instagram. And I would say, what is your name? And they would tell me their name. But then they would tell me their Instagram name. And I'd go, right, right. oh, my God, you're so, really in, yeah. you're so and so. I'm so happy to meet you. Oh, my gosh. And I felt like I already knew some of them. There's a few that really became close friends because, I mean, this started years ago. Then a friend reached out maybe two, three years ago. I posted the Space Needle lot because I live in a high-rise downtown. Mm -hmm. And when I go up to the roof, there is an insane view of the Space Needle. I don't live on the 41st floor for the people who think I do. <laughs> I don't have a grand penthouse on the 41st floor. It's the communal roof deck. And I... <laughs> is all the Seahawks up there? Like, what? <laughs> who's on 41? It's all for the building. It's an amenity for the oh, okay, building. Nice. Yeah. So a friend wrote me on Instagram and said, when are you going to start printing these photographs? Mm. And it had never occurred to me. And mm. a couple of people started saying, when are you going to have a show? Which I do not have a plan to have a photography show. But it did make me want to go out and actually buy a camera and not just use my phone. And I did buy a camera. Mm. I do enjoy using it. I still am a little afraid of it. You know, the phone is definitely easier. Right. <laughs> but I do love having the camera and trying to learn it. And I'm enjoying using it more and more, especially when I travel. I use it a lot. So, yeah, Instagram fed into um, my creative life mm -hmm. and my love of connecting. And then my competitive side, which mm, is, uh -huh, <laughs> which was, I don't think of competition as a bad thing. And I think a lot of women are taught to think that it's bad. It means we're competing when I was young for men to be the prettiest. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, men weren't competing for that. Men were competing in sports, in business, in mm -hmm. school. So competition, especially like if you're following the rules and not cheating, it can be super fun. When it's not fun is when people are cheating and they're winning. So sometimes say in business, if somebody's doing something really shady, you know, mm -hmm. that does not feel, and somehow they're winning, that does not feel good, but you're not going to be shady or I don't think you guys would. I don't want to be shady. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be shady to win. Right. Of course. Well, and I think when there's space for more than one person at the top, 
One of the things I think is really tricky that women struggle with is competing with each other in a way that is not conducive to either person really when they're competing. And a lot of that seemed like it was happening a lot before because there wasn't a way for both of them to win. So they were pitted against each other. And now there really is. But there's another thing that I read in an article a few years ago that really resonated with me, that when boys are little, they play games with a beginning, middle, end. There's a way to win the game. And there's rules to the game. Mm -hmm. And girls play loosey-goosey games of dolls. Mm -hmm. Subjectives versus Mm -hmm. objective. So boys learn it Mm -hmm. really young. And I started really thinking about, you know, I am competitive. And I like it and it's fun. And I think of competition as fun. And I compete with some of my friends with some business stuff, but I don't think of them as my competitors. We happen to have businesses that might compete, but I don't think that one of us is going to win and the other is going to lose. I guess I just don't look at it like that. And so with Instagram, I didn't look at it like that either. But I was saying to a friend one day when I was still trying to understand like, well, what resonates with people and what time do you post and maybe you'll get more likes or what are the things I post that people like? looking at my phone, I was like, I'm just going to check my score. My friend said, your score? You call your likes your score? (laughs) I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I don't know. I also will easily post things that I just like, and I don't Mm -hmm. care if I don't get a lot of likes. I don't do it all for the likes. But, you know, the way I've used Instagram for our business, the businesses has been really amazing because, you know, you get to tell your story, your visual story. And I'm such a visual person. I really enjoy that. And I think about like Oddfellows Instagram, we're trying to show a day in the life. You know, what is Oddfellows like? Who are the people that work there? Who are the people that go in there? What does it look like? Not just the food, you know, and we, of course we post the food and post drinks, but we try to mix it up so that it gives a feeling of what it would be like to go to Oddfellows and tell the story, tell the story. Yeah. And I do like the storytelling aspect. And I suppose with my own life, with Instagram too. I Part of the reason I wasn't interested in Facebook and I wasn't interested in Twitter is much of being somewhat public. I'm private. So I was like, how can I be on Instagram early on and be private? And I found a lot of ways that I could, which, you know, people know I have this little white dog named Jack. He's a Westie. I follow mm-hmm. other Westie people. Some Westie people follow me. <laughs> so do you have a Finstagram? What, what? What's that? You know, it's for the young people. I didn't remember. Like, what? I didn't know what it was either. I had to have it told to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. A Finstagram. It's your fake. The F is from fake. Oh, so it's like you okay. have your public persona one where you're creating this story and you're telling this beautiful story of everything that you do and like mm-hmm. your life is amazing, blah, blah, blah. Oh, right. And it's a public profile. And, and then, then you're you basically your, it's like your personal brand. And then you have your private one that is like 10 people or 20 people. I kind of like have strong feelings Double digit about this. people of yeah. only your very closest friends. And I know that's people your that secret do that. Yeah. Thing. And you maintain well, part, these two different profiles. But part of it is because the people I know that do that have a really curated Instagram and they may, say, be an interior yeah. designer and they're only showing interiors. I remember one time I was with somebody who did that years ago and I can't remember. We were someplace and just having a dinner somewhere and I was taking pictures of the food. I guess I was trying to show more the experience than a beautiful food shot. And he said, I wish I could do that, but I can't put that on my Instagram, but I'd like to show that I was here. And so he started this. That guy needs a Instagram. Like, I, yeah, I feel like, <laughs> but I, I, my strong feeling is I feel like that invalidates one of your feeds. A, B, I feel like authenticity is vulnerability. Sure. So if you're not willing to be vulnerable on any level. You will but never are, have like, any I had to be explained to what this feed. was. Like I'm old yeah. enough. This had to be explained to me by somebody who was younger. And I do see how it's kind of a different thing when you are like these people that grew up with social media their entire life, like 
the level of exposure that they've had is way more like in at their like young formative years when they were just socially awkward and terrible and there was so much drama and everybody was like 13 or you know I mean like I could see how you would like if I had had social media when I was at that age I'm so like, glad I didn't oh my god oh my lord you know and so it's like I can see the logic yeah well I, I think it depends on what you're using your feed for yeah if you're using it mainly for business I have a friend that says if you've got more than 250 followers you're selling something <laughs> interesting yeah, yeah. yeah so if you if you do have say 30,000 followers and your feed is about your, you know, architecture and design, or it's all about food and restaurants, then you would maybe want to have one that is more personal. I, I can see why, but it just depends what you're using your Instagram for. And I decided early on with a friend that said, you really think about it. Okay. If you're going to do it, what do you want to say with it? So I decided my dog, my house, it was weird posting pictures of my house at first. My business is travel. And friends' businesses or just businesses that I happen to go into that I think are really wonderful. I don't have a strong need to post my family and friends unless my friends are on Instagram. Sometimes I will. So I can keep my private life private, but I don't have a need to have a second Instagram that's just like friends and family mm -hmm. either. Yeah. I don't know. I, I get to post enough yeah. about what I'm doing and what I like and what I care about right. that I also really enjoy it. But I love when people approach me and say, I don't really know you, but I follow you. I hope that's not creepy. I'm like, no, it's not creepy. I would make it private if that was <laughs> creepy. <laughs> right. And they'd say, I just saw, I saw that you were just in New York or I saw that you were just in Paris, wherever it is. And I just love it when you travel because you give me all these ideas where to go mm -hmm. when I get to go to that city. And the first time I heard that, I was like, wow, that is super cool. I really, mm -hmm. really like that. And now I hear it fairly frequently or where to shop or where to eat or whatever. Um, so I'm happy that people follow along with what I'm doing and get some sort of inspiration, you know, or their own trips or that things to do in like Seattle. That the influencer nature of it came about more organically in that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, no, I didn't have a conscious plan I'm gonna decide to, to be become an influencer. An influencer. No, I did not. <laughs> so here's hopefully a challenging question. If social media and Instagram had existed when you opened Linda's, would Linda's have looked different than it did? Would you have approached the design differently? Good question. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because, you know, like Linda's didn't have a website till maybe like three years ago. Because mm -hmm. I, for a long time, said, why do we need a website? Like an old school dive bar wouldn't have a website. That just seems <laughs> dumb. <laughs> so, and then we had a page. Maybe it was like five years ago. Then we had a page, just one page that had information. But King's had a website a long time ago and the mm -hmm. other businesses did. So sometimes I get kind of caught up in, well, we're busy. We don't, you know, and we're Linda's. We're our, like our own little world. We don't need to do X, Y, Z. Right. Now, if over the years we'd gotten slower and slower and people didn't find us to be an interesting place to go, a fun place to go, then I might have rethought the way we had to market Linda's. But, you know, Oddfellow says that because everybody needs now their Instagram, that one spot that people will Instagram a lot mm -hmm. when people consciously, you know, do that in design at this point. And mm -hmm. I don't see anything wrong with it. For Tallulah's, it was the cat painting, but mm -hmm. I didn't put it in there because of that. I just liked the cat painting. <laughs> and, and then for Oddfellows, it's been the flag. But Oddfellows is obviously, it's a very Instagrammable restaurant. And it is, I believe, the most Instagram restaurant in Washington State, which is kind of cool. Or very cool. I, actually, <laughs> I, do, I do really like that, I have to say. But, Nothing wrong with that. But it wasn't designed with Instagram in mind. It just happens to have big windows and great light and a light-colored palette, which makes it Instagram-friendly, for sure. Right. 
But that flag was bought because Obama had just been elected because it reopened in December of 2008. And I was looking around for things to put in Odd Fellows. And I went into this antique store in Georgetown and they had this old flag. And I thought, wow, we have a president that everyone is so excited about. <laughs> it is time to hang a flag. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up with the flag. Oh my God. Now I'm going to look very it differently at that flag. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's funny because I had friends that were opening the Ace in New York and I was talking to one of them and they said, we were just at Brimfield and we bought this huge flag for the lobby. Sometimes things are just in the wind. And I was like, wow, they did that at the same time. And there were other people that started using flags. Yes, the zeitgeist. It is. But it was also because so many of us were excited about mm -hmm. Obama being president. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, Bush is gone. So right, right. Would, would flags have become on trend if it hadn't happened then, now, with Trump as president? I don't think so. No, probably mm -hmm. not. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, I follow Roman and Williams, and I'm at times a fan, and then at other well, times right. really aggravated so actually, with them. They were, the, they were the ones that were that bought the flag for the right. ace in New York. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there really was this trend right at that moment was that, like, refurbished USO kind of feel look. I know the ace in New York really played on that. Mm -hmm. I never really put it together, for some reason, never put it together that it was 08, 09, and that and vein of nostalgia that was being tapped into. I really do think it had, I mean, that was my yeah. motivation, mm -hmm. and, and other people started using flags, and I just think that if we'd had another Republican president mm -hmm. or the president we have today, how patriotic people on the left feeling. I mean, of mm -hmm. course, we are. We are patriotic. We mm -hmm. love our country, but I do think it had a lot to do with Obama. It wouldn't have happened with so many people at the same time mm -hmm. if the political sure. climate hadn't just changed and everyone was feeling so hopeful, I think. I mean, that was my reason, but I'm guessing it was probably the reason yeah, that of a lot of other people. total sense. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting when things like that happen in you know different parts of the country. And then I've certainly been called out for copying people. And we talked about it. Mm -hmm. And I had somebody call me out for copying with Smith on Yelp many, many years ago, copying a place in New York. And I said, go look at Linda's Tavern yeah. and mm -hmm. look at the salvage wood, old light fixtures, old paintings, and taxidermy. It was designed in 1994. And tell me that I was copying somebody that opened in New York last year. Yeah, no, <laughs> not even close. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, that's an indication of a person who doesn't know design. Yeah. Not really well. Sure. I mean, it does happen. I've seen a couple of designs, sometimes here in Seattle, that are definitely a one-to-one -one copy of something else. But yeah, that person did not know what they were talking about. Yeah. Because that kind of aesthetic wasn't showing up in New York until the mid-2000s. And it was a different thing. We talked about that last time. It was like the British colonial spice trail thing mm -hmm. and it's adjacent mm -hmm. but it is definitely not the same it was so happening anyway. in other cities too and no one mm -hmm. was copying each other it, when no. it was first starting to happen and being on trend is not copying either no exactly so it's just like exactly. that is not copying is a very specific thing yeah i agree but parallel then, thinking is not copying no no exactly <laughs> yeah exactly well i'm glad they got put in their place just now on this podcast. Those <laughs> people that was 10 years ago. <laughs> <who> obviously <laughs> subscribe and listen. <laughs> so I know you are sort of minimizing the places that you are running right now. But what is next for you? I want to travel more. I want to spend more time in New York. And I don't know. I want to have like a little more free time to see what happens. I mean, I think when you're busy, busy, busy you may miss things that are floating around that you might become interested in. And I find that when I have more free time and when I'm traveling more, things just pop up. 
And I'm interested in so many different things. So, you know, over the years, people have said, if you don't keep opening businesses and your company doesn't get bigger, what will you do? Well, there are a lot of things that I can think of to do, but most of you, the You're people... not just a one-dimensional person that can only do one thing for the rest of your life? That's crazy, Linda. Many, many of the people that, that say that to me are, you know, just like straight on business people. And so if you're not doing business, then what are you going to do? And because I think of myself as both a creative and a business person that somehow has been, you know, lucky enough to figure out a way to make a living with both. And I like both. I definitely can see other things to do besides just opening restaurants and bars. And I don't really know what that means. But one, I'm trying to learn Spanish by using the Duolingo app. That's a good app. I that one. <laughs> so I'm trying to make myself use it a little bit uh-huh. every day. So that's just one of those little things when you have a little spare time. <laughs> and because yeah. every time I go to Mexico, I'm like, why do I not know more Spanish? I love Mexico. I've been to Mexico at least 60 times in my life. Mm-hmm. And I would like to spend more time there. And it almost feels rude to not just have like some basic Spanish. Mm-hmm. So Duolingo. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's kind of a perfect note to end on. We've actually been going over time, which is fantastic. Linda, thank you for coming back and recording again with us. It was super fun. There's Are we going to do it again in a couple ab- weeks? Absolutely. But <laughs> yeah. hopefully as, as an sure. actual sequel to this conversation instead of doing <laughs> yeah. it over again. And actually, you know, that other conversation didn't even overlap that much. But this one, it's just gone. It was just meant to be this way. Yeah. I'm okay with it. I've made peace with it. Thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And Design Goggles has a brand new page on the Board and Vellum website. I would be super excited if you went there and looked at it because we worked on it and it took time. And that would be validating. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again and we will see you all in a few weeks. <laughs>